Welcome to Scrap the Script, the podcast which unravels the outdated stories we tell about ourselves. This show is for all the serial checkbox stickers out there who are tired of playing by the rules and want something more. Hi guys. So just before I start, I just want to give a note of warning um that because I'm in transit at the moment and not at home, I am not able to have the same sound quality as usual. Um and I'm actually sitting by a window right now and it's raining quite torrentially outside. Um I'm in Devon at the moment in the UK. So um if you hear some noises whether it's a rain or um a lightning yeah please forgive me this is just a the setup we have today and because I'm not a professional podcaster anyway I thought that it'd be it'd be good enough um yeah so this week um and in this episode I will be sharing with you my journey with food and to say the least this feels quite vulnerable right now um and at the same time it feels really natural it feels like it's something that's been coming and cooking for a while <laughs> cooking food how funny um and for a long time i feel like i held on to my journey with food like a dirty little secret like some sort of hidden weapon like a piece of information to keep in my back pocket to shock or to bond and i tucked it away very loyally waiting for the right moment to whip it out but with time this story about food has become less and less my own and the secret which was once covered in too much shame to be spoken actually no longer really became mine And today I feel free enough to share it, not to gain power over anyone, but to empower, uh to honor those who suffered and who may still be in pain, and to salute those of you who witnessed themselves, friends, family members, partners lose themselves in the grips of suffering and obsession. And to be completely honest, I could have told the story in a million different ways. Um so I want you to know that this is one perspective based on biased memory in this specific moment in time. But the aim is not to create a single version of the truth, but rather one that can contain many different understandings. And I have a feeling that this is not only my story. This is our story. It's yours and it's mine. And I trust that you will handle it with care. and i hope it may support you in coming a step closer to yourself like some of the previous episodes i'm going to be reading a text that i wrote um and hopefully you will be able to journey with me let's begin spilling the beans my journey with food where should i start maybe a thursday afternoon in 2009 i've just come back from school mum is still in the office as i walk into the kitchen i remember we have my favorite snack time treat 
raspberry jam and ready-made crepes. That's French pancakes for the uninitiated. Excited, I open the fridge. I place the ingredients on the table, open the crepe package and unscrew the jam lid. Then I reach for a pan and gently place a crepe on it. I turn on the fire and feel the heat through my fingers. When the crepe is warm, I place it on a plate and scoop out a large spoonful of jam. As I spread the jam on the crepe, the sound of crackling raspberry seeds makes me shiver. Pleasure or disgust? I don't really know. Probably both. The red jelly soon covers the whole crepe. I press the spoon harder and the jam travels through the little holes of the crepe onto the plate. As I roll up the crepe, I see the little red dots all over the yellow dish. Traces. Proofs. That'll do. I use a fork and knife to cut through the rolled snack. My movements are slow, meticulous. I make sure the cutlery shows the sign of this short encounter with sugar and fat. I go on my tiptoes to reach for a plastic bag from the basket on top of the fridge. As I move back to the table, my heart starts beating faster. Okay, this is the moment. I shiver. One, two, three. I take the crap with both of my hands and throw it in the bag. Yes. Suddenly feeling threatened, I rush to the front door. I take the keys and open the locks. Just a few steps away from me, I see the public bin. I'm now running. I reach the bin, tie the bag, throw it in. Run back, close the door. Oof, I can breathe. Back in the kitchen, I sigh. I place the pan in the sink and leave the plate and cutlery on the table. Okay, done. As I walk up the stairs to my room, I rehearse. Thank you so much for the crepes, mum. They were so good. And that jam, mm, I couldn't stop eating it. Why do I rehearse? Probably in the hope that my heart will break a little less. The pain of lying may become a little duller. The sense of rottenness deep in my veins may quieten. Just a little. I've always loved food. As a kid, I was known in my family as having a hearty appetite and deep appreciation for flavors and textures. I'd spend hours in the kitchen with my grandma, preparing South Tyrolean knödel, saffron risotto, rich tomato sauce and fried cheese sticks. I would lick my fingers with deep pleasure, grateful whenever someone shared their snack with me, excited at the idea of trying new flavors never encountered before. Food, in many ways, was my love language. Until one day, it also became the language of pain. And of course it didn't happen overnight. What did happen overnight, however, was a massive shake-up in my family system. A piece of news and radical shift in dynamics, which in itself may have been bearable, but added itself to a pile of fears, beliefs, pain and suppressed anger that I didn't even know I had in me. When my dad, who I had often had to say goodbye to, announced that he was moving to a new country, with his new partner and a child on the way, I slowly had to face that the crack in my heart was deeper than I could imagine. And this big change found a fertile ground to further erode my protections. 
A virus had weakened my immunity and a medical error had worsened the condition. My body was tired and alert. It was also the season of first mentions of adulthood. Teachers, parents and friends were speaking of life after school, of university, of jobs, of flying the nest. This made me feel uneasy. Raised by young parents still in the process of understanding who the hell they were, I had to grow up pretty quickly. While this had turned me into the tough little cookie I was, I also wondered, how could I become an adult when I felt like I still hadn't lived my childhood to the fullest? In usual responsible rescuer style, when the news about my dad's move came through, I first thought of my mum, convinced that the pain I felt was because I was worried about her. What would the news do to her? Would she break? I had learned in my childhood that her pain could sometimes become so present that it was the pain I was sharing my, my home with, rather than my mother. Like a dark shadow hovering over our household, I would hold my breath and pray for my mum to be liberated, terrified to be left alone with this cool dark breeze of pain. But my mum didn't break, and when she didn't, I realised I was the one who was falling to pieces. In just a few weeks, it felt like every ounce of joy had left my body, like the lights had been dimmed. I became concerned, worried, agitated. It became harder and harder to ignore the weight on my shoulders. The layers of memories, of emotions, of questions that were bursting to be freed. Many of which I realized later weren't even mine. Traumas and roles carried over, generation after generation. It became clear that I had a choice to make. To let the weight crush me and disappear into oblivion or to turn to the beast and face it. Even though I was riddled with fear, I felt some deep sense of trust and resolve, some deep sense of knowing. I knew the journey would be dark and I knew I would encounter many dragons along the way, but I had to go through it. I knew I had to walk through this dark tunnel of accumulated questions and that one day I would be back in the light. So where does food come in? As I started working with the beast, I soon realized a 14-year-old girl, no matter how introspective and precocious, would probably need some help. So I asked to see a therapist and my mum and I found Jacqueline, a tall, alternative, generous woman draped in colorful garments smelling of oak and lavender and who welcomed me every two weeks in her wooden consultation room. But getting support didn't stop me from feeling quite out of my depth. While I knew where I wanted to go and why I needed to do this work, nothing could prepare me for the moments where the emotions were so raw and so intense that I was scared they would eat me up. I found it hard to bear the moments of overwhelm where rage, pain and terror would burn my insides. Based on what I had observed in my family, I convinced myself that letting these emotions come out would destroy everything. I was scared. What if I lost control? This is how food, the symbol of pleasure and raw enjoyment, became the tool of control. Food, or the lack thereof, became my way of turning down the volume of those emotions. Food became my friend and my enemy 
food intake something I could rule, plan, limit, abstain of, indulge in. It became what I could manage when reality felt like it was spinning, wild, turbulent, defiant. Food gave me grounding. It gave me a sense of power. It gave me a purpose. It also gave me a very addictive way of managing life. A tool that soon became a trap. It all started with listing what I ate. At the end of the day, reviewing meals, snacks, drinks. When I felt like I'd eaten too much, I would promise myself to account for the difference the next day. I started running, often, fast, in any weather. Delirious at the idea of burning calories and fat. I started lying about what I had eaten, about not being hungry. I started comparing my plate to that of my friends at school, my mum at home. I switched to smaller plates so they would look fuller. I started organizing my meals, refusing pasta for dinner when I knew it would be served at school the next day. Refusing a biscuit when I knew there'd be cake on the weekend. Planning, planning, planning. Trying desperately to hold my world together. Meals became moments of deep ecstasy and acute stress. Every bite coming to feed a body craving to be nourished. Every bite coming to feed the belief that this body had had enough already. Restaurants became experiences of exaltation and torment. I would choose the least calorific meal on the menu and feel smug when others ordered fries and desserts. Yet I would also feel panic of being watched and strangely of not having enough on my plate. Eating at people's houses became events of deep solitude. Alone in my pain not to be able to choose what to eat. Alone in my shame not to be able to enjoy what was given to me. Alone in my fear that not finishing my plate might disappoint those I love and finishing it might ruin me. I started feeling weaker, no longer able to see the same reflection in the mirror as others saw of me. Food became something I needed to deserve. Through a good day of work or a long run or a successful day of eating light. So light that my insides would be turning on themselves. That deep hunger was the sign that I deserved to eat that day. But even then, the stress and the habitual way of contracting and fearing each meal made my stomach vibrate, complain, unable to digest anything at all. Eating became painful, always my body mimicking the beliefs in my mind. Excessive bloating, cramps, rashes. See, I told you eating is no good. Other obsessive behaviors emerge along the way, like the need to look spotless, coordinating socks with the ribbon in my hair, matching my makeup with every shade of my outfit, feeling on edge when my hair wasn't done or the necklace was a different texture than my ring. Every attire was planned days in advance. At school, my class notes looked printed rather than handwritten. My rough drafts neater than the chapters in my textbooks. I would spend hours carefully taking notes of my notes, throwing sheets away whenever something had to be crossed out. Everywhere I went, I wore a big smile on my face. I'm so happy I tried to convince the world. I convinced many. On the outside, polished. On the inside, battlefield. 
between the world and I a veil. I felt so far from everyone, angry at those who dared to be happy. A stranger in my own class, in my own house, in my own skin. And that loneliness, that estranging, was probably the worst part of it all. I was convinced people were constantly speaking about me, negatively. I became so focused on myself and my suffering that it was unfathomable to me that anyone wouldn't be focused on me. I remember browsing through my mum's emails looking for a mention of my name, finding a message written to her cousin describing how scared she had been when I had come back from holiday, how I was just bones now. What I had in front of me was a despair and helplessness of a loving mother. What I read was judgment, fear, shame of having me as a daughter. The more the word confirmed my belief that I was alone, the more I would sink into the relationship with food, my only friend and companion on the sad journey of disappointments. And most people are definitely not equipped to deal with this. I remember a girl at school who stopped me to tell me that she knew I was so skinny because I was trying to be attractive, but that being so skinny actually meant that I was now really ugly. And there were other times where people got angry or judgmental, who took it personally when I couldn't finish my plate because my stomach was in knots, terrified of the consequences of ingesting just one more ounce of energy. There were the powerless eyes of my mum when I cut a slice of bread so thin that it would crumble on the floor. My grandma's tears of having her carefully crafted dishes be refused. And who could blame them when I didn't even know what I needed? When what I thought would save me, not eating, was actually the one thing that was killing me. Yet despite being unaware of it at the time, so much love and concern was directed my way. Alex, my friend and then boyfriend, who stayed by my side no matter what, who made it clear that no level of spite or darkness would scare him from loving me, just as I was. Many close friends who without words showed me that things would be okay, that they may not understand but they didn't need to in order to stay close. One in particular, who was going through similar emotions and in our vulnerability we found comfort, a shelter away from the chaos. Teachers who worried about me and shared their care and concern. My parents who awoke startled, first riddled with guilt and slowly able to bring the attention I had craved throughout my upbringing. Perhaps gifting me with the parenting that they hadn't been able to share before and gifting themselves with the pride of letting their child depend on them. But while I knew there was light at the end of the tunnel, there were times where I felt stuck. I became very comfortable with my role as a victim. Mimicking some narratives in my lineage of broken hearts, I came to believe that being damaged was the safest way to receive love. That if you showed your pains and misfortunes, you'd have more chance to actually get the care you craved for. That in a world of unhealed wounds, being pitied was the closest one could come to being loved. A proxy for love. An illusory, ever-frustrating substitute. A tyranny that says, poor me, look at me. Hold me, otherwise I will break. See me, 
otherwise I will die. And like in every narrative about a victim, there were the perpetrators. I got stuck in stories of blame. I blamed my parents, blamed their parents, blamed my newly born little brother. Blamed the world I was born in, the society I was raised in. I blamed my teachers, my friends, my body, my mind. Blame was my answer to everything. Magnifying every event, every moment of the day to find what was wrong and who needed to be condemned. And it's a dangerous game to play, especially by a malnourished brain in constant alert that sees every move as a threat, ready to jump at any time. And who would dare to stop me? I was the girl who didn't eat. The girl who was obviously more in pain than anyone else. The girl who sacrificed her freedom and agency to be the small, the inoffensive, the commiserated and protected one. Some people speak of recovering from eating disorders. Others say you can never really recover. I say it's not about bloody recovering. Recovery is the act of returning to a normal state. It assumes going back to something that was temporarily out of whack. But what if my relationship to food wasn't a kink in the system, but rather an, an alarm bell, a vital siren telling me something about my so-called normality simply wasn't working? What if I told you that this time of darkness was a blooming awakening? The start of a deep journey within, a journey of questioning, of learning, of understanding who the hell I am and what this life is all about. I never went back to the normal of repressed emotions, of insecurity, of confusion. I evolved. And it wasn't an easy process and definitely not a quick one. There is no silver bullet or three-step technique I can rave about. Getting out of that tunnel was real messy and strenuous and I've wanted to give up a thousand times. But it was my process, my journey, and I wouldn't change it for the world. And here's a random list of things that I did and still do to support me. Therapy with Jacqueline, the attention of both my parents, their commitment to asking questions and showing their care, building a relationship with my little brother, Seeing my body through lover's eyes, dancing and shaking, yoga, somatic therapy, learning to recognize my body's needs. Breathing exercises, opening up to friends, hearing other people's stories. Coaching and counseling, laughing out loud, crying in the dark of the night. Journaling, setting intentions for the future, later meditating and learning to welcome even the most embarrassing parts of me. Studying, learning, growing, being loved and loving. Non-duality teachings, understanding that my thoughts don't define me. Reading books, painting, writing poetry. Ultimately, all these tools, experiences and people restored my faith in my power and in the goodness of the world. In the process, I learned about the fundamental importance of letting others help me of taking responsibility for my inner world and emotions, and of growing to love and accept every single cell of the messy masterpiece that I am. And the journey was definitely not straightforward. 
I learned along the way that the compulsion to control and desire to numb can show up in very subtle ways. It may hide behind a need to work out every single day to feel worthy, a fear to work out too much and have thick thighs, a feeling of guilt when eating a three-course meal, a feeling of dirtiness after having hoovered all the crisps at a dinner party, a compulsion to detox after an unhealthy dish, or to step on every scale in eyesight, to limit my intake of carbs, an unease when friends say they're on a diet, a belief that my body may collapse without vitamins for a day, a creeping shame when my plate is smaller or larger than others, a slight nausea when seeing lingerie models on Instagram, or a wish to drink caffeine to quicken the expulsion of food from my body. The journey was also not linear. It's taken me 10 years to be where I am today. 10 years of moving on and falling and picking myself up again. The food control bit, an old habit, popping up in moments of greater stress and challenge. When the survival brain kicks in in moments of threat and reverts back to its favorite tool of protection. Like when a partner broke up with me and I felt like I no longer deserved to eat. Or when a business meeting went south and I ate chocolate until I felt sick. Increasingly brief and sporadic pa passages of dark clouds and doubts. And I went through allergies, stomach upsets, binges, tears. And sometimes I still get caught in a trance. I find myself eating ice cream from the tub, searching to fill the void in my heart with desserts, with pasta, with some illusion of solidity. Old stories kick back in. Unworthiness washes over me, freezing me in time and space. But today, the real difference, beyond the rarity of these events, is that they are not followed by a tornado of self-blame, shame and judgment. There is awareness throughout. There is acceptance. There is understanding of the stories that may still trigger wounds. There is honoring of the parts of me that need attention. I can choose now to suffer or to welcome. I can hold myself and feel whole amidst the turmoil. I can appreciate that this is the journey of a lifetime and feel grateful for the rich learning in each and every moment. I'm no longer scared of falling. I'm frustrated sometimes, angry even, annoyed when change happens slower than I'd like. But I know that no matter what happens, I am home. This skin is my home. This little body of mine is my home. Food is my medicine, my spiritual practice, my reminder, my direct path to coming back to me. Ultimately, healing did not happen because I was no longer broken. Healing happened because I stopped trying to fix myself by trying to become someone else than me. Healing happened when I understood that there was nothing to fix because I wasn't broken in the first place. I was scared. I was surviving. I was in need of resources and attention. I wanted to wake up. And just to make it clear, I'm in no way trying to aggrandize eating disorders or any other compulsive behavior for that matter. Nor am I trying to cast a bright light onto it. 
and I definitely do not recommend going through a decade of mental health challenges. This is not about celebrating obsession, but about sharing the hidden details of its story and perhaps give you the strength to accept your own shadows. Rather than food, your control and numbing weapon might be exercise or work or booze or video games or sex or weed or relationships. No matter where you stand, ask yourself, if that control or numbing habit wasn't there, what is it you would have to feel? I also want to raise my voice in a world where diet culture has normalized depriving ourselves of food. A $166 billion per year industry which sells us the idea that the shape of our bodies is the source of our happiness promoting underfed models and shaming curvy men and women. I want to raise my voice in an era of social media, where teenagers spend hours comparing themselves to edited photos of influencers raving about the benefits of eating grass or injecting steroids. I want to raise my voice in a medical system that diagnoses anorexia and bulimia, trapping people in labels and treating symptoms without ever getting to the root of their cry for help. I want to raise my voice in a society that may not be educated to understand the wisdom of those asking for change, of those starving for love, for care, for genuine attention and recognition. Because in many ways, our relationship to food is the core of our relationship to life. Without food, we die. Controlling food is an attempt to control a life that feels uncontrollable. But let me tell you, my friend, food is not the problem. We turn to food when we are not hungry and away from it when we are, not because we are sick, but because we are hungry for something. There is a void inside us, a hole in our hearts and souls that we just can't seem to fill. A longing for that something more for real connection, for belonging to something bigger than us, for a life that has more purpose and meaning. What we truly want is to feel seen and at ease in our own skin, to give a rest to the critic in our mind, to find peace in the simple act of being. We are hungry for effortless joy, for lasting happiness. What we seek in food and drugs and achievements and relationships and profits is a love that is not conditional on either of those things. We are aching, yearning, craving to feel whole, to feel truly alive and awake when we know we will soon die. But we have been so deeply trained to get rid of our yearning, to avoid our suffering, to numb our fear, to pathologize our longings. From our youngest age, we learn to cover our hunger of the soul by consuming goods and services, by obsessively seeking approval from the world around us, temporary remedies again and again. But by tuning away from our feelings and the emptiness inside us, by mistrusting our bodies and sensations, we ignore what could truly transform us. By distracting ourselves from our deepest desire, we ignore its inherent message. And many systems benefit from us going numb. They know that knowing ourselves is dangerous to the status quo. Listening to our hunger and realizing what it is and what it is not calling for 
is the one and most powerful tool we can ever gain. Accessing that knowing is a revolutionary act. The incessant hunger is not a pathology, my friend. It's our cry for freedom. Now, this may all sound to you like a white upper middle class problem. And in a way it is. Choosing not to eat when millions of people in the world are dying of hunger sounds fucking sick. But you'd be surprised to know that eating disorders touch every level of society. Every community, every age and every gender. Remember, our relationship to food mirrors our relationship to life. Feeling unworthy of living and loving is definitely not a class issue. Yet my privilege, I'm a white cis woman born in a middle class European family, does mean that I had the ability to access the support I needed. Every day I am grateful that my internal collapse was softened by the external circumstances able to hold me. I was gifted with parents that were open to apologizing and forgiving, with an employed single mum that was able to provide financially, with a community that did not ostracize me, with access to a plethora of approaches and tools and conversations that cradled me in the darkest moments. This is pure luck, and it's definitely not everyone's reality. But it is this privilege that allows me and urges me to share my story today, to go beyond my discomfort of feeling exposed and use my voice to raise awareness, not only about the existence of eating disorders, but about the reality of it, the messiness and stickiness of it, to give hope to those who may still be stuck, to give knowledge to those who want to be better allies to encourage us all to go beyond labels, to sit down and truly want to understand, to have the courage to feel awkward and listen to each other's pain and needs, to get to the root and dare asking the big questions. What are you truly hungry for? Let's listen to the answer. Whoever you are, whatever your story, I see you. You are not broken. I love you. Thank you for journeying with me today. And see you soon. Ah.